Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On November 22, 1990, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher, stood before the British Parliament to deliver one final speech. Thatcher, a controversial figure whose hardline conservative politics had either led Britain to prosperity or ruined its economy, depending on who you asked, had just been voted out of office. In this final speech, she orated a summation of her time as prime minister, claiming that her policies had introduced unprecedented prosperity before lambasting more than a few of her political opponents. As she began to wrap up, the weight of the moment really began to set in among the gathered representatives. Her allies and opponents alike knew that the parliamentary chamber would likely never see someone like Margaret Thatcher lead it again. She concluded her speech to resounding applause, though many in attendance were clapping because she was leaving, not in support of her words. This moment was the climax of Margaret Thatcher's power. How she got there is a story of determination, savvy, and commitment to ideals, no matter the personal cost. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Margaret Thatcher, England's first female prime minister. Known to both supporters and detractors as the Iron Lady, Thatcher was England's PM from 1979 to 1990 and was hugely influential in England's transition into a modern economic power. Thatcher's conservative policies and her commitment to seeing them through transformed Britain. But according to some, it also irrevocably destroyed the way of life for most of the working class. But we're not here to say whether Thatcher was good or bad for Britain. Rather, we're going to look into how she rose from her small roots, up through the ranks of the male-dominated British political scene, and became one of the most powerful and controversial figures of the late 20th century. Margaret Thatcher was born Margaret Roberts on October 13, 1925, in a small town called Grantham. Grantham had its own historical significance long before Margaret came into the world. A number of prominent figures, including physicist Isaac Newton and political theorist Thomas Paine, had lived in the historic town. Grantham was also the birthplace of Edith Smith, the United Kingdom's first female police officer, so you could say there was something of a legacy for pioneering women in Grantham. Margaret's parents maintained a modest lifestyle. Her mother and father, Beatrice and Alfred, were hard-working Methodists who lived in the small flat above the shop they owned. 
They both sought to instill the value of hard work in Margaret and had her working in the shop as soon as she was old enough to handle a broom. Her father was particularly instrumental in forming Margaret's worldview. Around the family dinner table, he would exclusively discuss politics and philosophy without any room for gossip or more trivial matters. Alfred, a staunch conservative, engaged in politics because he was resentful of the left-leaning policies of the other local politicians, who he saw as interfering with the livelihood of business owners like himself. True to his character, he didn't just speak out against policies he disagreed with, he ran for office so that he could work to enact change. Alfred was also a Methodist preacher, local counselor, alderman, and eventually served as the town mayor. In doing so, he exposed Margaret to the power of the political system and instilled in her the firm, conservative belief that the government should not interfere with those trying to independently succeed. As she grew up, Margaret came to model herself after her father, even going so far as to devote her focus in school to more male-dominated subjects. She had a knack for science and chemistry and earned a distinction from her high school when she graduated in 1942 at the age of 17. Her final report from the school was prophetic. Margaret is ambitious and deserves to do well. She took that to heart and immediately set her sights on a lofty goal to attend England's prestigious Oxford College. Margaret missed out on a scholarship, which prompted her father to offer to pay her tuition. That's interesting, given that much of Margaret's political philosophy would stress the independence of individuals. Perhaps she knew that accepting that help from her father would open the doors for her own political ambitions. Regardless, Margaret enrolled at Oxford in 1943 to study chemistry. Margaret was, by all accounts, a decent student, but she really excelled in her extracurricular activities, namely the Oxford Conservative Association. Margaret came to lead this organization during her time at school, becoming the second woman ever to do so. The Conservative Association was a prestigious club, and its members often hobnobbed with the Tory elite. Before we go any further, we should do a quick rundown of the British political system. There are two houses in the British Parliament, Lords and Commons. The House of Lords is filled by appointment, whereas Commons is an elected body. Commons is generally where most legislation is debated. There are 650 elected members of Parliament, or MPs, in Commons. An election must be held every five years, but a prime minister can call an election whenever they want. If your political party has the most seats in Commons, congratulations, you're running the country. There are two major political parties in Britain, the left-wing Labour Party and the right-wing Conservative Party, more commonly known as the Tories. Humorously, the name came from an old Irish insult meaning criminal. We'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. Each political party has its own leadership, decided internally by their MPs. If that party takes the majority in commons, the leader becomes prime minister. But if the party loses power, the former prime minister still retains their leadership status within the party unless they resign or are voted out. On the other hand, a sitting prime minister's own party may turn on them 
and remove them from power via a vote of no confidence. While the position of prime minister has no term limits like an American presidency does, the two-check system of both party and population approval helps keep the position in check. While non-consecutive prime minister terms are possible, they are rare. The lack of term limits means that someone only leaves the position of prime minister if they are voted out. Generally, the parties avoid putting someone forth for the position who had already been voted out. The one other main element worth noting is that each department of government, like education and health, has shadow representatives, which sadly isn't quite as cool as it sounds. It has a similar function to minority leadership in the U.S. Senate, as in a group of representatives from the non-controlling party who are there to consult on policy while not having much power to influence it. It would sort of be like if the U.S. Secretary of State had another Secretary of State sitting around and telling them they were doing everything wrong without really executing any policy. This was the system in which Margaret Thatcher would go on to make her mark. Margaret graduated from Oxford in 1947 with a degree in chemistry and immediately found work as a research chemist. She worked on projects such as improving the taste of certain ice creams. That may sound like a dream job, but Margaret wasn't happy with the work, where her annual salary was 50 pounds less than her male counterparts, and she was often promised promotions that never happened. Margaret knew by then that her real passion was politics. After working her Oxford connections in the Tories, she was named the Conservative candidate for the parliamentary seat representing the town of Dartford in the 1950 election. It was almost mathematically impossible that she would win. The Tory leadership weren't exactly setting her up to fail, but she was young and untested. Dartford was a historically labor district, so the Tory leadership wasn't risking losing anything by nominating Margaret there. Plus, she could learn how to work in politics at a ground level. As she prepared for her first election, Margaret experienced one more personal milestone. She met Dennis Thatcher, a perfect gentleman who was rich, quiet, and polite. As Dennis and Margaret commenced their courtship, she was soundly defeated in consecutive elections called in February 1950 and October 1951. Despite the loss, Margaret made a name for herself. The media found her fascinating as both the youngest conservative candidate and a woman in politics. She lost, but she also gained about 6,000 voters that had supported Labour in the last elections. After her second loss in Dartford, she married Dennis in December 1951 and officially became Margaret Thatcher. While Dennis and Margaret, by all accounts, cared for each other deeply, their marriage also had more practical advantages. Dennis was wealthy and connected. He routinely interacted with England's business elite. Being Dennis's wife gave Margaret a certain air of respectability that she previously didn't have as a woman from a humble town. After marrying Dennis, Margaret quit her job as a chemist and pursued politics full-time, enrolling in law school in 1952 and becoming a certified barrister, that's the UK term for a lawyer, in December 1953. She specialized in tax law, which gave her the expertise to argue about economics on a national level. Towards the end of Margaret's legal education, she also gave birth to twins, Mark and Carol, in August 1953. 
One popular historical joke is that Margaret had the twins on purpose. A boy and a girl born at once for maximum efficiency. Joke or not, efficiency was the doctrine in the Thatcher household. Margaret had her career to worry about and had little interest in slowing down her ambitions for her new children. Dennis, meanwhile, had a successful paint manufacturing business that kept him busy. Mark and Carol were in the hands of nannies for most of their infancy, and Margaret and Dennis shuttled them off to boarding school as soon as they could. Margaret's focus on her career was somewhat revolutionary for the time, and she was outspoken about her beliefs that women should pursue the highest callings they could. However, she was always reluctant to frame herself as a role model. She knew the kind of person she needed to be if she wanted to succeed, and she also knew that not everyone was cut out for that kind of life. She's quoted as saying, it would be extremely difficult for a woman to make it to the top. But with Dennis's money and her growing reputation among the Tories, Margaret was able to dedicate the next five years to lobbying for a better seat where she might have a good chance of swinging a win and making it into Parliament. Her persistence finally paid off in July 1958. Margaret was named the Tory nominee for Finchley. Now, Finchley was a London suburb that was a model for the England Margaret envisioned. Rich, full of new money and independently run business. Finchley was seen as a safe conservative seat, but she still ran up the numbers, winning 4,000 more votes than her party's predecessor in October 1959. Through hard work, some lucky circumstances, and an incredible determination, Margaret Thatcher had finally been elected to Parliament. She would be Finchley's representative for over 30 years until 1990. Her political career was just getting started. Next, we'll see how Margaret rose through the Tories and became the face of modern conservative politics during some of the worst economic struggles England ever faced. Now back to the story. In 1959, 33-year-old Margaret Thatcher began her first term as a member of parliament as a backbencher, or an MP without an office, in the Conservative Party under Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Margaret joined Parliament at a particularly turbulent time in Britain's history. The British economy was flailing. Britain was known then as the sick man of Europe. After World War II, the country's GDP had stagnated, only growing about 0.7% a year, with around 7% inflation. The Labour Party had held power for the bulk of the post-war years, and most of their programs at that time aimed at relieving the country's ails. Industries were nationalized, the National Health Service was established, and labor unions were favored in order to keep the working class employed. By the end of the 1950s, though, unemployment was climbing, and the labor government's attempts at keeping the money flowing and the workforce strong were faltering. This was one of the factors that led to the conservative victory in 1959 and put Margaret into parliament. She was scheduled to speak in front of Parliament only a few months after her appointment. On February 5, 1960, Margaret introduced a bill to restrict the power of labor unions by forcing them to allow press at their meetings. In doing so, the government would have a better idea of what the unions were planning. Her speech was a template for the rest of her political career. She was poised, in command of the issues, but also strict 
demanding, and completely hostile to her opponent, which in this case were the unions. The reaction in the House of Commons was positive. Charlie Pinnell, a Labour MP who opposed the bill, still noted specifically Margaret's, quote, rather beautiful maiden speech. And a Tory MP, W.F. Deeds, praised Margaret's courage in laying hands on such a bill. Even those who were against Margaret on the issue respected her gall for presenting it as her first act in Parliament. The press were equally enthused. To quote the Sunday Dispatch shortly after her speech, fame and Margaret Thatcher made friends. Prime Minister Macmillan assigned Margaret the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Pensions and Insurance, a low position that was traditionally reserved for women representatives. The job wasn't glamorous, but Margaret took it as an opportunity. She continued to learn about the inner workings of government and how spending was allocated. However, in 1964, power swung back to the Labour Party. There hadn't been much movement on the economic front, and apparently the voters were more inclined to see Labour try out some new solutions. Margaret retained her seat in Finchley, but she wouldn't be able to spearhead legislation while Labour was in power. But just because she was now in the opposition didn't mean that her life was any less busy. At this same time, Dennis suffered a nervous breakdown. Dennis was 50 years old and felt responsible for keeping both Margaret and his family in good financial straits, a pressure that ended up too much for him. He essentially disappeared to South Africa for two months to recuperate, leaving Margaret to handle her precarious political position on her own. While Dennis never officially said that Margaret's career and the sudden change it took was responsible for his breakdown, Margaret's daughter Carol feels that Dennis dealt with the stresses of politics far worse than Margaret ever did. He was exhausted, but according to Carol, he didn't like every aspect of being married to a politician. Dennis's sudden departure took a toll on Margaret, who began to feel very isolated and fearful. She was a member of a political party that was out of power, and now her husband had seemingly left her. It was a stressful time. Dennis eventually returned from South Africa, sold his business, and accepted a cushy position on the board of directors of an oil and chemical company that was guaranteed to keep his family in a good financial position. With Dennis back and in good standing, Margaret was able to refocus on her career. She served in six different shadow posts over the next six years, working in treasury affairs, housing and land, fuel and power, transport and education. This was actually an opportunity in disguise. These shadow posts exposed Margaret to several levels of national government, which she was able to learn about without the added pressure of making decisions. Since the Tories were the minority, they didn't have any power to control policies. They could only protest them. And Margaret used this time to get very, very good at protesting. She wasn't afraid to pick a fight with anyone who opposed her from either party. This fascinated many in the House of Commons, who were used to members towing the party line. Margaret gained a reputation for being tough, determined, and, well, a little mean. Whether that reputation is embroiled in sexism or not is up for debate. The Tory leader, Edward Heath, was considered an affable and diplomatic figure, which put him constantly at odds with Margaret's fiery determination. Though they were members of the same party, 
He made no secret of his distaste for her. He dragged his feet on any promotion she demanded, worrying that the higher she rose, the harder it would be to kick her out when she became too much to deal with. Heath and the Tories retook the power after an election in June 1970. By then, it was seen as regressive to have an all-male cabinet, and despite Heath's misgivings about Margaret, he begrudgingly made her his Secretary of Education. This was seen as a cabinet position that was the most feminine, and oddly, despite her small government leanings, Margaret regularly wanted more money for education. Most of Margaret's education policies stuck to those established by the labor government, mostly due to public opinion favoring labor's strategy. On one of the few occasions where she bucked the conventional wisdom of the department, she became embroiled in her first controversy. While she sought more money for education as a whole, Margaret also attempted to be thrifty with government spending. She proposed ending a program that provided free milk to schoolchildren after learning she could save 8 million pounds by doing so. Shockingly, this was not a popular idea. The backlash was swift and immediate. The British press dubbed her the most unpopular woman in Britain and the very catchy Mrs. Thatcher, the milk snatcher. Ouch. It definitely painted her in a supremely negative light. Prime Minister Heath almost fired her over it. Margaret was so distraught by the public backlash that Dennis suggested she cut her losses and quit politics altogether. But she toughened up and later blamed her staff for not warning her of the possible backlash. The whole debacle seemed to vindicate Heath, who assumed the scandal would be enough to curb Margaret's career. Margaret, not willing to bend, kept her head down and worked quietly as education secretary. During the following years, Edward Heath's Tory government weathered its own series of political attacks. There was a devastating miners' strike in 1972, and wages were in such danger of sinking that many businesses started operating only three days a week so that wages didn't bankrupt them. Heath eventually caved to the miners' demands, and the unions pushed for higher and higher wages, driving inflation up to 10% by 1974. It seemed like Heath was over a barrel. Margaret publicly stood by the Prime Minister and the party, although she spoke harshly against Heath's concessions in private. Heath finally called an election in 1974, and the Tories were soundly defeated. While Margaret retained her seat, the Tories were back to being the opposition party. Heath was offered the chance to step down from his position, but he defied the rest of the party and continued to serve as conservative leader. The stage was set for an ultimatum, and in February 1975, the Tories made their move and called a challenge to try and vote Heath out as Tory party leader. Margaret sided with the rest of the party against Heath and pinned her hopes on a friend, Sir Keith Joseph, the prospective heir apparent to Heath's position. However, Joseph removed himself from contention almost immediately after the challenge was called. During a very public speech, he said, quote, A high and rising proportion of children are being born to mothers least fitted to bring children into the world. Some are of low intelligence, most of low educational attainment. They are unlikely to be able to give children the stable emotional background, the consistent combination of love and firmness. 
In other words, he called poor people stupid and evil. It didn't go over well, and Joseph quickly stepped down. In his place, he suggested the Tories vote for Margaret. In the first vote of the leadership challenge, Margaret Thatcher beat Edward Heath 130 to 119. While Margaret technically needed at least a 15% majority to win the leadership, Heath saw the writing on the wall and stepped down. Just like that, Margaret Thatcher was the leader of the Conservative Party. Margaret had always been a talented speaker. As she prepared to accept the position, she noted the monumental pressure that she knew was about to be placed on her shoulders. I know full well the responsibilities that await me as I enter the door of number 10, and I'll strive unceasingly to try to fulfill the trust and confidence that the British people have placed in me and the things in which I believe. As sudden as her ascension to leadership was, it wasn't without its drawbacks. The prevailing wisdom is that Margaret only won because Heath was so despised in the party, not because she was popular. Margaret had her work cut out for her, but she relished the challenge. She began working with TV producers to hone and cultivate her image. She spoke out publicly and often against the Soviet Union, who in response ran a newspaper article dubbing her the Iron Lady, a nickname that she adored and immediately adopted. It's definitely a better name than Milk Snatcher. In 1978, a series of labor unions led strikes in a period later referred to as the Winter of Discontent. During the strike, sanitation, public safety, and ambulance work ceased, and the labor government were just as over a barrel as Prime Minister Heath had been a few years ago. Somehow, unemployment was rising, inflation was climbing, and wages were dormant. It was a mess, and the people of the UK demanded a solution. Margaret pressured her colleagues to call an election. During the campaign, Margaret attacked the Labour Party's performance and promised the usual Tory platforms of free enterprise, tax cuts, and spending decreases. Here's some contemporary reporting, including a quote from Margaret. The debate on the no-confidence motion went on for most of the day, with Conservative leader Margaret Thatcher leading the attack on Mr. Callaghan and his Labour government's policies. Government double prices, double bill queues, double debt, diminish our defenses, and undermine public respect and confidence in the law. But I believe that this is not only a failure of policies, but of the whole philosophy on which they are based. The debate didn't really sway anyone. The legislators were committed to their positions long before the vote was taken. And as expected, Mr. Callaghan lost and will now resign and name a date for a general election. Vic Aiken, London. Labour finally conceded and held an election in 1979, which the Tories soundly won. Margaret Thatcher, as the leader of the party, became prime minister. Margaret took office on May 4th of that year, and in her first speech as prime minister, promised, quote, to replace discord with harmony, error with truth, doubt with faith, and despair with hope. Through a combination of her own dogmatic work ethic, her dedication to conservatism, and some serious missteps by predecessors on both sides of the aisle, Margaret Thatcher had become the first female prime minister of Great Britain at the age of 53. 
Within her first few months, she implemented a flagship policy of her premiership, the right to buy council houses. Essentially, she enacted a law that gave five million tenants of government-sponsored council homes the ability to buy out the homes from the government. Council homes were the British equivalent of public housing, and Margaret's legislation gave low-income citizens the chance to become homeowners at a reduced price, while also reducing government overhead. This was, at the time, a widely popular policy, as well as reflecting an element of the Tory dream. Anyone who wanted to own a house should be able to own one. There were drawbacks, but she did make affordable housing available. Margaret also quickly raised taxes on goods and services, attempting to bring in more revenue for the government so they could lower income taxes and get a handle on inflation and interest rates. However, the short-term response was abysmal. Unemployment climbed, which was exacerbated by Margaret allowing several struggling industries to fold rather than bailing them out as her predecessors had. She saw England as a free market state, and that meant survival of the fittest in industry with no regard for the welfare of the workers. The Tories did not take this development very well. Margaret had campaigned on promises of saving the economy, and within a few months, it was cratering worse than it had under labor. Margaret's approval rating dropped to 23%, the lowest of any PM up to that point. Pressure was on to renege on her policies as unemployment climbed. 364 economists banded together to write a letter to the Times of London, promising that these extreme policies were going to, quote, threaten England's social and political stability. But Margaret Thatcher was defiant. At the Tory party conference in 1980, she made it clear with one of her most famous remarks. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Believing in her policies, she would stay the course. We'll explore the defining years of Margaret Thatcher's political career after this. Now, back to the story. As she was settling into her first term as Britain's prime minister and contending with a turbulent economy, Margaret Thatcher faced her first real test of leadership. On April 30th, 1980, terrorists from the group known as the Arabs of KSA stormed the Iranian embassy in London and took the staff there hostage. The terrorists held the hostages for six days. Thatcher ordered a team of SAS commandos to deal with the gunmen in the first ever operation that the SAS carried out on British soil. After breaching the embassy with explosives, the SAS quickly regained control of the situation. Five of the six gunmen were killed in the raid. It was, for the most part, a success and gave Margaret a reputation as a strong, forceful leader. It even became a common theme for political cartoonists to draw Margaret busting through windows, guns blazing. But her bolstered reputation wouldn't do her much good unless the economic situation improved, which it thankfully started to. Economic growth was at 4% in 1981, and inflation was steadily dropping. 
Margaret claimed in 1981 that the party was through the worst of it. However, even this wasn't enough to guarantee that Margaret could stay in power much longer. While inflation and interest rates were coming under control, unemployment was still climbing, reaching 3 million in 1982. If a general election or a vote of no confidence was called, Margaret would be finished. Then Margaret got incredibly lucky when Argentina invaded Britain, or to be more specific, Argentina invaded a British colony. The Falkland Islands were a tiny holdover from Britain's colonial days, populated by about 1,800 people off the southeast coast of South America. Throughout the 1970s, Britain had actually tried to give the islands back to Argentina. However, the islanders liked being British citizens and refused any efforts to be returned to Argentinian sovereignty. In 1981, in an effort to cut government spending, Margaret took the advice of her advisors and withdrew several warships from patrol in the area. However, Argentina had recently been taken over by a dictatorial junta, who were eager to prove their might. The ships withdrawing from the Falklands signaled they were ripe for the plucking, and the islands fell under Argentinian rule on April 2, 1982. Britain was immediately outraged and embarrassed by the Argentinian invasion, and many Tories blamed Thatcher and her cabinet for leaving the islands vulnerable. Again, these are the same islands that they were trying to give back to the Argentinians only a few years ago. Well, an invasion is an invasion. During these weeks, the Reagan administration worked with the UN and attempted to sue for peace. But Margaret's government and the Argentines both stood firm. Looking back, it's more than likely that Margaret was counting on the Argentinians to not back down. After all, a conflict would almost certainly result in a British victory, which in turn would make Margaret appear favorable to patriotic Brits. That's exactly what happened. On May 4th, 20 British soldiers died after the Argentinians sank a destroyer. The British retaliated by invading the island on May 21st. The UK won the day with relatively little bloodshed on the island. The war ended on June 14th. This was arguably the greatest triumph of Margaret's political career. Her approval rating soared to 59% by July 1982, the highest it would ever climb. The prevailing feeling in the country is that she had stood up against a bully and regained Britain's honor on the world stage. Margaret coasted towards a second term, winning with a huge majority on June 9, 1983. The landslide victory spurred Margaret to keep pushing her mandate throughout 1984. Her supporters pointed to her victory as proof that the voters were obviously responding to her. Except that wasn't exactly the case. Despite the number of seats the Tories won in the 1983 election, less than 45% of the country actually voted for her, and her huge win was mostly due to the structure of the voting districts. In terms of actual turnout, it was one of the weakest victories in British history. Still, a win is a win, and Margaret took advantage of her new term. In 1984, she pushed for heavy privatization of industries. These were industries that were propped up by both Labour and Tory governments to help keep people employed after the economic stagnation that came from World War II. But Margaret believed it was time for them to fend for themselves. 
By the end of the following year, the previously public British Telecom, British Gas, and British Airways had all been sold off to shareholders, and standbys of industry were now in the hands of private investors. This immediately resulted in layoffs as the shareholders sought to maximize profits. Margaret also struck out harder against labor unions. She truly believed the path to an economically strong Britain was only achievable if unions couldn't interfere with the growth of private industry. She had made headway in weakening the unions before, but now she was in a position to finally transform Britain's relationship with organized labor. One of her major changes was altering a law regarding strikes. Now if a union wanted to strike, it was required to get permission from a majority of workers in the union, which would guarantee less action. This combination of privatization and aggression against unions would culminate in one of the more notorious events of Thatcher's rule, the Miners' Strike of 1984. Most of the working class in the UK, especially in Wales, were miners, but that industry had been flagging for decades. Whereas the previous administration had tried their best to keep the mines going, Margaret chose a different tactic. If the mines weren't making money, they'd get shut down. She proposed closing 20 unprofitable mines, which would eliminate 20,000 jobs. The miners naturally weren't happy about this. The leader of the National Union of Mine Workers, Arthur Scargill, violated the law and called for a strike without polling his union first. And for the bulk of 1984, the miners' strike would dominate the news. Margaret, as always, stood firm against the dissent. She ordered a massive police presence to counter the picketing miners, and these pickets regularly turned violent. One notable event, termed the Battle of Orgreave, devolved into a pitched battle between thousands of miners and police, spurred on when mounted police charged the miners. 51 miners and 72 police officers were injured. During the strike, over 11,000 miners were arrested and most of them were fired from their jobs. The strike raged on throughout 1984, with both Margaret Thatcher and Arthur Scargill refusing to budge. In the meantime, other tensions flared, this time almost lethally. During the Tory party conference in October of that year, Margaret and her cabinet were staying at the Grand Hotel in Brighton. Margaret was awake at 3 a.m. October 12th, preparing her speech for the next morning. In those early hours of the morning, a bomb that had been planted in Margaret's restroom detonated lasting a huge hole in several stories of the hotel. By nothing but sheer luck, Margaret had been waiting outside of the bathroom when the bomb went off. Had she been any closer to the restroom, she likely would have been killed. Five people were killed in the attack, including a Tory MP, and 31 were injured. Margaret was escorted out and appeared in front of the press a mere hour later, composed and poised. She went on to give her speech the next morning as scheduled. By all accounts, Margaret was completely unshaken. In her memoirs, she recollects her mental state the morning after the bombing. Quote, The news was bad, much worse than I had feared. I saw the news that Roberta Wakeham and Anthony Barry, MP, were dead. I knew that I could not afford to let my emotions get control of me. I had to be mentally and physically fit for the day ahead. 
The next day, the Irish Republican Army took credit for the bombing. The Irish Republican Army, or IRA, were the representatives of Northern Ireland who were currently in a bloody and protracted rebellion against centuries of British occupation. When taking credit for the bombing, the IRA's statement read, Mrs. Thatcher will now realize that Britain cannot occupy our country and torture our prisoners and shoot our people in their own streets and get away with it. Today we were unlucky, but remember, we only have to be lucky once. You will have to be lucky always. Give Ireland peace and there will be no more war. The bombing only increased Margaret's defiance against her political enemies, including the miners, who she had previously described as the enemy within. And as it had in the past, her strategy of not budging eventually paid off. While England did depend on the coal miners for survival, Margaret had had the foresight to stockpile a year's supply of coal as soon as Scargill had called the strike. When it became clear that Margaret would not budge, and in fact the miners needed their money more than England needed their coal, Scargill called off the strike. The mines were opened, and the still-working miners abandoned their strike without any of their demands met, returning to work in March 1985. As for the IRA, Margaret returned to her principle of appealing to patriotism. Although she loathed the IRA, she appreciated the idea of a unified United Kingdom and, in a rare move of diplomacy, negotiated with Garrett Fitzgerald, the Taoiseach, or Prime Minister of Ireland. The eventual result of their negotiations was the Anglo-Irish Agreement, signed by Margaret and Fitzgerald in November 1985. It was a landmark piece of diplomacy, and the first step to the eventual Good Friday Agreement that guaranteed peace in Ireland in 1998. Again, Margaret seemed to be unstoppable, despite the working class's growing anger at her and the constant climb of the unemployment rate. But while she was re-elected in 1987 due to further recoveries in the economy, she was rapidly making enemies within her own cabinet. There was a push within the Tories to join something called the Exchange Rate Mechanism, a plan within the European Economic Community which would later become part of the EU. The basics of it would be that the value of various currencies around Europe would be linked together in order to stabilize them, which would eventually pave the way for the Euro. While most Tories in the cabinet were for the ERM, Margaret stood in defiance. She believed in Britain, not the European community, and felt that she had worked to strengthen her country, not the whole of Europe. Here's a telling quote from a speech in 1987. We have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain only to see them reimposed, with a European superstate exercising a new dominance. Even for her fellow Tories, this was a step too far. After tensions flared within her cabinet, Margaret fired one of her top advisors, Geoffrey Howe, and prompted another advisor, Nigel Lawson, to resign. While Margaret would finally have Britain join the ERM in 1990, she had made new enemies within her party. Additionally, Margaret finally pushed the public too far, and she did it by favoring her own economic philosophies over the wisdom of her party. 
Margaret wanted to replace a major element of the taxation system, wherein each household was taxed with a community charge, which would tax each individual a flat rate. The idea being that every individual would pay their fair share. This new proposal quickly became known as the poll tax. Even among the Tories, this was seen as an insane idea, and the problems were readily apparent. Rich people would be paying a lower percentage of their income than poor people. It's not entirely clear why Margaret thought this would be a good idea, although some of the wisdom of the time was that everyone thought it was so crazy that nobody bothered to tell her not to do it. This feels like a repeat of the milk snatching incident.、Well, but this time the backlash was a hundred times worse. There were literal riots in the streets. Nobody paid the tax. Thatcher, as always, stuck to her guns and decried any Tory who disagreed with her. Between her intransigence with the exchange rate mechanism and the poll tax, the rest of the Tories had had enough. Particularly because they knew they could never abolish the poll tax if Margaret was still in power. On November twentieth, nineteen ninety, a leadership challenge was called among the Tories. While Margaret held the majority by fifty votes, she, much like Edward Heath before her, saw what was coming. She called her cabinet members into her office one by one and asked them straight out, "Do you still support me?" The answer from each of them was a resounding. Albeit respectful, no. She withdrew herself from the leadership ballot on November 22nd, and ended her political career with a fiery speech in Parliament, summing up her accomplishments to both the Labour opposition and the Tories who had just opposed her. She was succeeded by Prime Minister John Major on the 28th of November 1990. Margaret never really got over being thrown out of her office. She spent the rest of her years relatively quietly, but was bitter and resentful of how she exited her work in government. She wrote her memoirs and held speaking engagements. Her daughter Carol wrote a biography of Dennis Thatcher in 1996. While the biography mostly chronicled how Dennis kept sane while Margaret was running the country. It was also hugely critical of Margaret as a mother. Margaret died in 2013 at the age of 87 after a stroke. She had a huge state funeral, which was accompanied by raucous street parties celebrating her death. The week she died, the song "Ding Dong the Witch Is Dead" from The Wizard of Oz hit number two on the UK singles chart. Oof, harsh. Obviously, in her life and death, she was divisive. Well, nobody can deny that Margaret Thatcher transformed the country and counteracted the economic decline. That transformation also obliterated the mining communities in the UK, turned England from an industrial economy to a hub of international stock trading, and paved the way for the skepticism of Europe that eventually led to votes authorizing Brexit. Margaret Thatcher took power in Great Britain during a time when the country's people and its government were becoming increasingly divided across the political spectrum. She embodied this fractured country, taking extreme actions that, depending on who you ask, either saved or doomed Britain. We'll leave you with the words of Bard College professor Richard Aldous regarding the divisive legacy of Margaret Thatcher. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode.
You can find all previous episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Alex Switsky and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>